I feel cautious about how to start today because it's not, it's not through lack of preparation. It's because I'm so burdened to bring across exactly what God has shown me and given me. And I don't want to take away from that with any of my own thoughts. Let's begin in Mark chapter 15. We'll read 33 through 40. Mark 15, verse 33 through 40. And then we'll read a short passage from Hebrews 6. Mark these places in your Bible, and maybe you can, you can study them in more depth later. March 15, Mark 15 and Hebrews 6. The clear burden the Lord has put on my heart is, if I gave this message a title, Beyond the Veil. Beyond the Veil, V-E-I-L. Some of the newer translations might call it curtain, but what we're talking about, to be clear, is the material that hung and separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. That's the veil. Mark 15, verse 33, When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, gave up his spirit, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that, he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. <laughs> there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less of uh, Joses and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Keep that in your minds. We'll read a passage from Hebrews 6. Thirteenth verse. When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he's talking about Abraham, he obtained the promise, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, or beyond the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I want you to understand before we go any further in this message today, the anchor of our soul 
is the hope that Jesus made possible by going beyond the veil, consecrating forever the Holy of Holies, and giving us unmitigated access to the Father. That's the only reason we have hope. That's it. And I, I don't want to say that's it as if it's small. That's everything. Everything else that came before was a type and a shadow. Everything else that came before was a metaphor. Everything else that came before was a facsimile of the true thing that God was going to make one day. All our hope is in Jesus. That is the anchor to our soul. Not my faith. Not your faith. Jesus. And... With all the preparation this week, it didn't come to me until I was sitting there. When Hebrews calls Jesus the archegos of faith, or the translation says the author and finisher of faith, we think about it as like the things he made and the things he does. I want you to understand, he was the author and finisher, the one who went into the Holy of Holies that we can follow in there and not die. If that doesn't resonate or mean anything deep to you yet, that's okay. I pray the Holy Spirit will, will bring this out to your hearts. See, I don't have any information to tell you that's going to change you. But if the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and show you some of what He's shown me this week, you're going to be a whole lot better off. So, we've talked about the veil. We read a couple of passages about it. We see clearly that when Jesus died... A lot of things happened. There was an earthquake, rocks were torn in pieces, the earth was dark for three hours, some type of solar eclipse, I don't know exactly how God did it. Uh, whatever happened, there was such power in his death that that centurion guarding and making sure that this horrible event happened, there was so much power in his death that he said that was the Son of God. Wow, do you know God can... He brings power even out of death, even out of your suffering, even out of when you feel small, broken, and insignificant. His power can be present in that. Jesus showed us that. And when He died, not only was the earth affected, not only were spiritual things affected, the temple veil, a piece of material, a thick, strong piece of material was torn top to bottom. Lots of other things happen that I'm not prepared to, I don't have time to discuss today. Graves being opened up and people getting out and telling people about the Lord. <laughs> Say, that sounds hokey. It's not hokey. That's the power of God. Amen. They were bearing witness to what He had done. With God, all things are possible. Amen. And then we see in this Hebrew, the passage from Hebrews, I want to read this last part again. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus. Jesus. So what is the veil? And why is it significant? Some of you who have studied, you already have some answers. Good. But, but still listen to what the Holy Spirit reveals to you today. Amen. What is beyond the veil? Why is it significant? I want you to understand, first of all, you can't use religion and logic to understand what's beyond the veil. That's right. 
You don't need a rabbi. You don't need commentators. They might have some good ideas, but the only if they have ideas that matter, they were revealed to them by the Spirit. You can't see what is beyond the veil is so holy and utterly spiritual that you can't understand it with any natural apparatus. Not even religion, or maybe I should say especially not religion. The only way you can understand what existed beyond the veil is to enter into the holy presence of God yourself. And that was never possible until this moment when Jesus died and the veil was torn from top to bottom. Do you know that? You could not enter the veil. Some of you know this, but I want to teach it. And you can read it in Exodus and Leviticus. One man could go in... Um... I need to back up, I guess, and explain. God gave Moses a clear pattern for how he wanted to be worshipped, and he told him, you have to copy this exactly, down to how the linen curtain would be made, and what would be embroidered in it, and what would be in, in how it would be, the, the measurements of the tabernacle, what would be on the outside, what would be on the inside. And there were, there were three sections to the tabernacle. There was the outer court where anybody could go and have access and worship the Lord. There was the inner court or the holy place where only the priest could go as he administered his, 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 his offerings. And then there was the holy of holies where only the high priest could go and only once a year. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept which signified the presence of God. That is where He gave His his people a covenant promise and commands from Him, but it was all about covenant with Him. And that was in that holy place where none of us were allowed to go. Only the high priest. And it was so serious when He went in there. He first had to make offering for Himself and for the people. And then when He went in, they had a rope tied around His ankle. Because if there was something amiss in his heart that he wasn't aware of, if there was any unchecked pride, if there was any self-will, if there was any lack of purification, God would kill him. And they drug him out with a rope because if anybody went in to get him, they would die. Say, that sounds crazy. If it sounds crazy, I want you to understand how different Jesus made everything with his sacrifice. That's why I wasn't being tongue-in-cheek when I said, are any of you afraid God's going to kill you today? No, none of us are. Back then, it was a real concern. Amen. This veil, to put it simply, was the dividing barrier that separated us from the presence of God. Amen. This is not no big deal. It's the biggest deal. The most serious thing I can talk about. And you could only go in the presence of God in a way, as I said, He prescribed, and only one person could. And all of you, if you were Hebrews back in that time, you better hope the priest was right with God. Because what would happen to your sacrifice for that year if He died? Can you imagine having your hope in that man who Hebrews 5 tells us is himself encompassed with infirmity and weakness? 
so that he might also realize nothing he does on his own can help anybody. It's all God. Amen. When Jesus died, offered a perfect sacrifice to the Father in heaven, and supernatural power of God ripped that dividing barrier from top to bottom, here's what happened. There's no more separation from God. There's no more division. There's no more old religious systems. There is only Jesus. I feel like that's been the primary theme of everything I've been preaching lately. And I'm still just barely understanding it. Because we all grow up entrenched in cultural and religious belief systems. Part of what God has burdened me to show us today is He freed us from all systems. There is only Jesus. It doesn't mean things don't matter or there isn't an appropriate way to worship Him. But what I'm telling you is now it's a new and living way. The way beyond the veil where Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, has already entered and we can follow Him in there. Three uh, things happened, maybe more than three, but there's three that are significant, very significant. The first was, we don't think about this as Gentiles. When the temple veil was torn in half, the temple was desecrated. And so the first thing God did with this act was desecrate the temple. How were good Hebrews going to worship God if the primary... um, aspect of their temple worship has been ripped in half. Everything they understand from their religious system has been desecrated. Do, do we, I can tell you that, you can sort of get it, but being Gentiles, we just don't understand the significance of this. John 2.19, Jesus said, answer, answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, we know, Scripture tells us, He was talking about the temple of His body Himself. And yet, there was also an allusion to what would happen. God was destroying the old religious order that He had established and ushering in a new and living way. There's no more veil, there's no more temple worship, it's no longer necessary. Could you imagine having thousands of years of strict adherence and religious teachings? You had, I'm not saying these things didn't matter. I'm saying they were only shadows and figures of that which was to come, and the law never justified anybody. And yet God required that they try to observe the law in this way and have this temple worship. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but it was all to establish an understanding of the holiness of God. If there's no veils of separation from the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple, the people can no longer practice temple worship like God told Moses. He clearly showed Moses, Exodus 25, verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. This was the prescribed place where God would dwell with His people, and now God has destroyed it. Where's He going to dwell now? In this temple. Do you understand? 
I'm really trying to stay composed. Um, just so you can hear me. Exodus 26, 31 says, You shall make a veil. This is command from God to Moses to tell the people. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place and and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lamp stand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. Does it sound like God cares about how this is handled? And all of this has been fulfilled by and replaced by Jesus. I'm so glad I'm not a Jew. I mean, really. Could you imagine trying to keep up with all of this? What a blessed time we live in. <sighs> Hebrews 10.1, I've already paraphrased this, but I want to read it beginning in Hebrews 10 verse 1. The law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year after year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Why do we have it then? God knew, even when He gave these commands to Moses, that these religious observances themselves would not justify the people in His sight. The only way they would be justified is when He looked at their hearts. And if their hearts were in a place they should be, then God would relate to them and have fellowship with them. You could do all the checkboxes, all the religious requirements, and your heart could be amiss and there would be no fellowship with God, even back then. Even back then. It wasn't like... God had it this way and now He has it this way. Underneath, fundamentally, it was still the same. God still looked on the heart. And yet He had these religious requirements, again, so that the people would have some concept of who He is. So we're going to consider that just a little bit today. I like how the New Living Translation handles this particular verse. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow or a dim preview. A dim preview preview of the good things to come (laughs) and not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Now we have perfect cleansing. Now we don't just have a dim preview. We can look with unveiled faces that beautiful? We miss out on it oftentimes because of our own sins, our own limitations, our own lack of expectation. But we have access. The second point, the first was God desecrated the temple. The second thing that happened when Jesus' sacrifice allowed the veil to be torn. Prior to that, this was a place, the Holy of Holies, enshrouded in darkness. Once it was built, nobody ever saw the inside, That's right. except the priest one time a year, the high priest. Yeah. 
what went on inside there was a mystery to everyone else. When this veil was torn, there's now light shining on the mystery of God. No longer is he enshrouded in mystery. No longer is he covered up by a lack of understanding. Jesus, the light of him, has shined in our hearts. That's what scripture teaches. He was the light which lights every one of us who know him. Isn't that beautiful? And then in heaven, he's going to be the only light. There won't need to be any other light. This is so glorious. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses. Isn't that fascinating? We don't have to be like Moses. As good of a man as he was, as faithful of a saint of God as he was, as strong of a warrior as he was, as powerful of a leader as he was, he did things through God that I'm never going to do. I'm never going to point my staff and the waters are going to spread. I'm probably never going to bring water out of a rock. Probably never going to bring plagues on a warring nation. Moses had a unique, special job, purpose, and power with God, and yet we don't have to be like him. We have a better circumstance. Do you know that? Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Even back then, there was a foreshadowing that this religious order that God has established is going to be brought to an end. And there was also a diminishing of the radiant glory of God upon Moses. He had to cover his face at first because they literally couldn't look at him. Later, they could have looked at him, but he kept his face covered. That's another sermon for another time. But even the most faithful man of God can continue in something that's no longer necessary. And that should be a warning to us. The Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Have you ever wondered why some people can't see some things? Why can't this brother or sister of mine or this friend of mine or whoever, why can't they get this? Why can't they see what I so clearly see? The veil hasn't been taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You want to see clearly truth and light and have your life directed as it needs to be? Turn to Jesus completely, utterly, wholeheartedly, with absolute submission. I'm talking to saved people. A lot of people got saved and never again submitted an unconditional surrender to the Lord. And if that's the case for you, you're missing out. I'm not suggesting I've lived my life in absolute surrender to the Lord, but the seasons that I have or the moments that I've been in complete submission to Him is the most glorious experience I've ever had in this life. And heaven will be that continually. Absolute submission to Him. It's beautiful. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty or freedom. 
And we all, this get this part, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Once again, there is no utility, no benefit, no usefulness from religion. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit and God the Father. There's no value in religion. Usually church people are uncomfortable when you preach something like that because I'm telling you, it's almost like a brainwashing. We have deep in our little religious DNA that some of what we do is important. And I want to tell you not to criticize you, but to free you. None of it is important. The only thing that's important is what God leads. Amen. Nothing else matters. Nothing. If these people weren't justified through the multi-layered, strict adherence to minute details of the law, how do you think you're going to get any justification from showing up at church once a week? <laughs> it doesn't impress God. <laughs> And I'm saying that again, not critically, but I'm saying what a blessing. We live in an age of time where we don't have to worry about the minute religious details. All we have to do is seek the Lord with our whole hearts. Amen. And I don't know about you all. There's a few in here who understand this. Everything else is a disappointment. Everything other than the presence of God leaves me hungry. I like y'all, but I want the presence of God. I like being in your fellowship, but it's not as good unless the presence of God is there. I like doing nice things for people, but I'm hungry for the presence of God. That's the point of this veil being removed. We can be in His presence. There was plenty of religious stuff before that, but there wasn't unmitigated access to His presence until Jesus died. And that's the third point of what happened. Anyone can now access the most intimate presence of God directly and personally. You don't have to rely on the high priest. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I had a little Catholic friend years ago. I didn't know anything. I was maybe 19 or 20 and I was downtown Nashville for a, something related to school and ran into these people who were playing bluegrass on Broadway. It was, Broadway was a lot different back then. And a lot of them knew the Lord. And we got to talking about it, and there was a, one girl who said, she said, I don't have what y'all are talking about. I don't have it. And I said, you're, you're Catholic, right? She said, yeah. I said, you, uh, you go to your priest for absolution? She said, yeah, that's what I was taught. I said, have you ever tried getting absolution from Jesus? She said, I didn't know I could. I said, try it. <laughs> I don't know what ever happened to her, but that's what God put in my heart to tell her. See, he's the mediator. Amen. You don't need me. Or any of these other preacher brothers or anybody. Jesus. Let me just tell you some of what the Lord burdened me, put on my heart this week. 
I don't think people really understand. I don't know if we really understand how all-encompassing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was. I don't know if we really get it. Even, even with me preaching this, even I've been sitting in this message for some time, I still just barely understand. It was all-encompassing. It changed everything. Through His perfect sacrifice of Himself, He ushered in a new and living way beyond the veil. He did something no one else had ever done before. And what His sacrifice allowed is something no religious person could have ever fully anticipated. The most faithful saint of God could not have fully understood what Jesus was going to do and what exactly would happen and how it would feel to have unfiltered access to the Father. This is brand new. And now we're living in 2,000 years of something that sometimes we forget is brand new. And this can be brand new every day. And what Jesus did for us, it's new every day because it's a living way. It's never supposed to get stale, stuffy, and routine and regimented. It's always supposed to be alive. When Jesus died and the veil was torn, He gave us direct access to God the Creator, the high and lofty One who inhabits heaven and earth. The One who sits on the circle of the earth and looks down on us like we might look at grasshoppers. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus gave us direct access to Him, to His most intimate inner courts. Again, that doesn't mean a lot to us as Westerners or as Americans because we don't understand the idea of royalty. Back then, even the king's wife had to ask permission to be in his presence. It was a big deal to go into the presence of a king and God is the king of kings. And Jesus gave us access. We don't have to ask permission. That alone should overwhelm us. The Old Testament, and let, bear with me because some of this, you might feel resistant to it at first, but I really believe it with all my heart. Bear with me and listen to what the Lord may show you. The Old Testament was largely about establishing separation. Clean things and unclean things. Clean animals, unclean animals. The people of God versus the nations of the earth. The people of God versus the priesthood. And most importantly, separation between God and man. That's largely what was established in the Old Testament and by the law. The people of God are separate from the people of the world. The priests are separate from the people. God's separated from the priest. God the king can only be approached through a proper mediator, and that man only has access to the innermost place of God once a year, as we talked about. But now, separation has been replaced with reconciliation. And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Isn't that beautiful? Did you know we don't have to be religious anymore? Some of you, that's a relief. Some of you, it's uncomfortable because you like being religious. You don't have to be. You just need to be a follower of Jesus. And I don't mean that in this like modern, wimpy, evangelistic, make everybody happy way. I mean it literally and scripturally. He's the one we follow. This is His way. Amen. Do we understand what a difference this is? The separation has been replaced with reconciliation. The division has been replaced with intimate fellowship. The fear has been replaced with faith and love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. The old religious order of things has passed away. 
We have something new, full fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This never was heard of before until Jesus died. Much of the Old Testament deals with this simple but profound truth. God is holy. What do we mean when we say God's holy? That He's set apart, that He's separate from sinners, that He's high and lifted up, that He dwells in light no one can approach to. When we revisit the Old Testament, especially the books of Moses, without a topical agenda, usually when we read the Old Testament, it's because we want to support or prove something we already believe. And I'm not, I'm just, that's how we read it. Let me confirm something that I already know. When you read the Old Testament without a topical agenda, the main thing you see is the holiness of God and His separation from everything else. As I reread Exodus this week in preparation for this message, the separation of God from His creation was so clear. And this understanding is overwhelming. We see clear separation between the things of God and the things of the world. Clear lines between the people of God and the people of the world. Separation between God and men. And when we read with this open eyes, the only way I could even approach what I felt like was to say God is other. And really, that's the definition of His holiness. We don't even know how to describe it. He's so different than us, it's just other. The Old Testament is all about, or largely about, the establishment of this principle. God is not like us. And because He's not like us, the only way we can approach Him is in the manner which He has prescribed. And if we attempt to approach Him any other way, we might die. That was the world they lived in. When the old saints of God approached Him, it was with a profound and often terrifying awareness that they were requesting audience with the King and everything that would entail for people of antiquity. They understood this is a big deal. Take your shoes off, Moses. You're on holy ground. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Job, who God singled out as the most righteous man alive, said, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ear. In other words, God, I thought I understood you. But now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I abhor myself. No flesh shall stand in the presence of God. The old saints understood that. The deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian captivity demonstrates the separation of God from man, that He's all-powerful, that He can do whatever He pleases. The Passover instructions in Exodus 12 confirms this. Do exactly what I say or you'll die. The people's wilderness sojourn confirms this. They had a good time when they listened to God. When they didn't, it was terrible. We even see this in the life of Moses himself. The main man of God at the time, if you want to think about it like that. He served God faithfully. He put up with those people for 40 years. Anytime a pastor now gets frustrated with a congregation, they need to just think of Moses and his patience. 40 years with a stiff-necked people in the wilderness. Faithful, faithful, faithful servant of God. 
And if we're not careful, we with our modern eyes might look back on God's decision regarding Moses not entering the promised land and say, that's not fair. That's how I sort of feel in my heart. Poor Moses. Don't you kind of feel that way unless you understand the bigger picture? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a time when Moses struck the rock, brought water out of it, and we look back on that and we might say, he still got the desired outcome. What's the big deal? He got the water out of the rock. The big deal is that's not what God wanted. God could get the water out of the rock by Himself. He didn't need Moses. What God wanted from Moses was absolute, unconditional surrender and faithfulness from His heart in every moment. Amen. This is so... Imp we don't understand. God hasn't changed. And this was so important to God, this one act of carelessness kept Him from the promised land. And maybe it's, I don't know if carelessness is the right word, it's deeper than that. Moses was going to take on himself and do something that needed doing. Let, let this be a warning to us. We don't need to do stuff for God. Amen. We need to follow Him. Amen. It's so different. Moses thought God needed him to get some water out of a rock. He didn't get to go to the promised land. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Let's be clear, he still went to heaven. But he didn't get to experience what he'd been waiting for his whole earthly life. That's how important it is not to think of, take upon ourselves tasks that we think God wants. We need to be sure that we're not doing stuff for Him, we're walking with Him. Yes. Holding on to Him. Yes. God wants us to focus on Him. That's what we see with this from Moses. Obedience from the heart, nothing else is the goal. That's why I can't tangibly tell anybody what my vision for this church is. Because I can't have a vision apart from God. I can't have any plans apart from Him. And the moment the plans I thought He gave me diverge from pure fellowship with Him, they're no longer the plans that He gave. Do you understand? That's what religion does. God's not concerned with outcomes. The outcome that God wanted wasn't to get water from the rock. He was concerned with obedience from the heart. You might think God wants us to get people in here or get people saved or fill up the church or do this or do that. He's the Lord of the harvest. Our job is not to produce outcomes. Our job is to walk humbly before our God. I didn't understand that when I was younger. I was trying to serve the Lord, but I thought He wanted me to do stuff for Him. And that's okay. That's just part of being young. You're, you're excited, you're hungry, you're zealous. God doesn't need youthful zeal, and neither does He need um, the stability of old age. What He needs is submissive hearts. Amen. Now, it doesn't mean you can stop being youthful or that you can stop being old. There are seasons of life. I'm a little more stable than I used to be. Some of y'all are, are very stable. That's how it should be. That's the natural order of things. That's why Scripture teaches us to listen to people with white hair. You shall rise up before them and call them blessed. I was taught that. That's why. There's a natural order of things. But the main purpose of all of this is we never arrive at a place that we can do anything for God. We must always be with Him. 
What he wanted was for Moses again to seek him, to seek him, to yield to him, to obey him in every moment. The instructions God gave you last week might not be what he wants done today. We've got to be careful. When Moses lifted himself up to strike the rock, however well-intentioned he might have been, he usurped his position before God. And we need to take a lesson from this faithful servant of God. I've, I've tried to clearly say, I want to say it again, I'm nothing like Moses. I mean, he, he, I don't even pretend to think I've been in the presence of God like Moses was. And if that man... If that man could fall into the realm of self-will, so can we. Amen. Watch out. Those of you who've been here ever since I've been preaching, that's been a recurring theme. I've said this in multiple messages. It might sound weird. I'm going to say it again. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what I want when it comes to the church. All that matters is what God is leading and what He's pleased with. Nobody's opinion matters. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, if we get to that point, and I think we're getting closer to that point overall, things will be better. And when we stray from that understanding, things aren't going to be as good. We'll have religion instead of relationship when that happens. I, I, just a few more minutes. I need to finish this up. Um, only when we grasp some of the sense of the awesome and terrifying nature of God in the Old Testament can we begin to understand the unprecedented and overwhelming mercy of God in sending His Son to die for sinners. Do you have some grasp of that? We walk without fear mostly. We, we live in an age of faith. We live in an age of fellowship. Those people lived in a different time. And until we understand, how they looked at God and they thought He was awesome and terrifying, not gentle and loving. Until we really understand that, and then God sent His only Son to change that, we're not really going to understand what He did for us. What Jesus did on the cross, and really before and after the cross as well, changed everything. Not only did He change how we can approach God, but His perfect sacrifice changed the entire universe as well. Jesus and willfully laying down His life changed the past. Do you know those people in the Old Testament that were saved could not be saved without the perfect sacrifice of Jesus? If He had not laid down His life, they would not be saved. And it was so certain that He lay, would lay down His life that He would come at the appointed time by God the time predestined by Him. Don't get worried about that word. There is predestination. There is plans in the heart of God. If that hadn't happened, God couldn't have saved those people. And the only way He could save them was for this plan of God to be so certain. They, these Old Testament saints didn't have to wait and see what Jesus might do to know whether they could be saved. They were saved because of what Jesus would do. So when Jesus died on the cross, He changed the past. He also changed the present. We're saved because of what He did. We have access to God right now because of what He did. And He also changed the future. 
If he didn't do what he did, none of us would have any hope of forgiveness and peace without God. If he had not done what he did, no one in the future would have any hope of eternal life. And if he hadn't done what he did, none of the saints in the Old Testament times could have been redeemed either. All of this was through, by, and for God. Jesus changed everything for all time. No one was ever justified through the observance of the law. Listen to this. No one was ever... All this requirements, chapters and chapters and chapters that God told Moses in minute detail, use this kind of thread, put this on it, have this type of wood, it needs to measure this long, wide and high, you need to use this material. All of those things did not justify the people. And yet the law was necessary to show us who we are and who God is. Like the Apostle Paul says, it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And when the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, as I said, everything changed. Everything. Now we have access to the presence of God through our great high priest. So, in light of all of that, here's the thought I want to leave you with. After the veil was torn, Jesus died, the veil was torn, he was buried, he was resurrected. What did he tell his people? In light of this new, revolutionary, new and living way that had been ushered in. If anybody knew how to tell his people how they ought to live, it was Jesus. So what did he tell them? In light of things, in light of, man, you have access to God now. You don't have, the temple's been desecrated. You can't worship there anymore. It's not even the temple anymore. In light of that, all of your religious systems are now upended. You can't rest in being a Jew anymore, although they never could. It was always deeper than that. What did he tell them? He appears to them. They experience his resurrected body, his glorified presence. He tells them to wait. Wait. You remember that? He spends time with them. He confirms who he is. He lets them experience his resurrected presence. He reminds them, you're going to be like I am. And then he says, now I'm going away. I'm going to send another helper, a comforter. It's necessary that I go away. If I don't leave, could you imagine the worst thing in the world for these people is now Jesus is leaving. And he says, I have to go away because I have a better plan for you. The one is going to come called the comforter who will guide you into all truth because he won't speak of his own thoughts and opinions. He'll tell you whatever he hears from the Father. He'll tell you things to come. He'll guide you into all truth. And then he says, wait, wait for him. Do you think there's better advice now? Friends, wait on the Lord. Wait. Now, we have to understand waiting is not laying back on a a bench or something. It's like a waiter in a restaurant. That's the connotation. It's waiting. It's, I'm not going to do anything until I know it's what I should be doing. You know, have you ever been in a restaurant, you have a waiter who doesn't understand his role and he keeps interrupting your conversations? That's not what we're talking about. And we're also not talking about the other extreme these days where you go to a restaurant and some kids on their, or older person is on their cell phone and you can't even get a glass of water. That's not what we're talking about either. What we're talking about is the waiter understands his or her role and he's ready. He's attentively watching. The moment you need something, I'll be there. And until then, I'm going to shut up. 
That's my place. And this is a picture of how we wait on the Lord. And I'll say it again. We don't ever need to come here with any of our own ideas, our own plans, our own desires. We need to come here with submissive hearts. Mutually in submission to each other. Completely in submission to the head. And hungry for the manifestation of the presence of God. Jesus tells them to wait. Because, again, nothing they used to rely on would work anymore. We're in an, an age of time. I have to say this. I'm, I'm trying to get finished, but I need to tell you what I need to tell you. We're in a really interesting time with church and particularly small congregations like ours where a lot of the people who establish how things are done are dying. And then the newer people have personal preferences and want things done a certain way. And churches are handling this in maybe sincere ways. They're trying to figure out how to, how to navigate these generational divides. And what does this young person wants this, but this old person wants this. And that, You know how to navigate it? Wait on the Lord. Amen. See what the Holy Spirit shows you. The Holy Spirit doesn't ever go out of date. He doesn't ever become outdated or old-fashioned. He's always real, alive, and present. And Jesus knew, in light of this new way that He ushered in, none of the religious traditions or customs could prepare them for how to serve God in this new and living age. That's why He said, go to Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. When He comes, He'll guide you. The old order of things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not just when God saves you. When God saves you, you experience the reality of the new universe that He's made. The new has come. And when He saves you, you experience the new way. What a beautiful thing. Hmm. We live in an age of time that's beyond the veil. Isn't that beautiful? What do we do with that? I guess maybe the best way we could conclude is to echo the words from the Apostle Paul's heart. He talked about his religious qualifications, how he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he met all the requirements. He was the best religious guy around. And he said, you know what I think about all that? It's manure. It's a pile of dung. That's what he thought of his religious stuff. He said, what things were gained for me, I counted them lost. He said, I am hungry for one thing, that I may know him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, do you get it? That is the point of everything. That was the point of Jesus dying on the cross. That's the point of us coming to church. That's the point of me preaching. That we may know Him. And the power of His resurrection. The fellowship of His sufferings. Being made conformable unto His death. That we may know Him. Not as though we had already attained or were already perfect. That we would keep pressing toward the mark of Him that's laid hold on us. That's the point. And to be very clear, that's why I don't like religion. Because religion can't do that. That's right. Only Jesus can. Amen. 